CBD test results panel. Uh, my name is Jake Elman. As he said, I'm the publisher of MJObserver.com. We uh, work alongside Adam to cover the industry from a professional point of view. We focus on the investment side of things. He focuses obviously on terpenes and testing. And I'm um, honored to uh, moderate this panel for you all today. So, yeah, is there? Hello? Oh, there we go. So initially I had a kitschy little uh, panel intro prepared where I was going to ask the audience for uh, an estimate as to how many tons of hemp biomass it would take to produce a ton of CBD isolate. And then I was going to tell you that regardless of how many tons, it's enough to break the ice. But I'm going to save these jokes because I hear I'm up here with some real sharks in the space. So I'm going to start digging into some real questions on testing. <laughs> Um, as many of you may know, this week some concerning news came out in the cannabis testing uh, arena. A lab out in California was kind of busted for falsifying hundreds of test results over the last two years plus. Um, all of this product made its way out to the retail market and was consumed. Uh, the worst part is, is that these tests that were falsified um, had nothing to do with cannabinoid content and were rather testing for things like heavy metals and uh, pesticides, the things that could really hurt consumers. Um, so to introduce my panel, starting on my left, we have Aaron Riley. He's the president of CannaSafe, the first ISO accredited cannabis lab in the world, which we'll get into what ISO accreditation is in a little bit. Next, we have Twee, who is the founder and CEO of TweeView Consulting and founder of Hammer Enterprises, which is a vertically integrated hemp-derived uh, cannabis company operating in Colorado that specializes in white-label product manufacturing. Next, we have Daniel Vorisek, who is the technical director at Canavera Labs, as well as an experienced professional chemist. Last but not least, we have Daniel Morgan, uh, chief scientific officer at Botanica Testing and a specialist in mass spectrometry. Uh, so without further delay, I was recently digging up some cannabis, uh, some common methods used to test cannabis, and I came across everything from mass spec to something called ultrasonic extraction. Could you all elaborate on some of these methods, what are most common, and, and why they're being used? I guess I'll start. Oh. Let the, the scientists talk first. <laughs> all right. Um, there are a litany of methods that can be used for the extraction of cannabinoids from plant. A lot of them will also depend on what is regulatorily allowed in the state that you're doing the work. For instance, if you are a medical marijuana company in Florida, you're limited right now to supercritical extraction or CO2. You're not allowed, at least once the regulations are fully in place, to do butane extraction or anything like that. As per things like talking about ultrasonic extraction versus supercritical, they're just separate methods of breaking down the cell structure to introduce the solvent of your choice into the system to get the method, uh, I'm sorry, to get the chemicals that you want out. Ultrasonic works by bombarding the cells with sonication energy to break up that cell wall and the cell barrier. Um, supercritical turns CO2 into a gas and liquid simultaneously, which is then pressurized through it, which is why you'll hear people talk about it being a good method. It generally preserves sugars, terpenes, and things like that. Alcohol and solvent extractions are how they've always been. Grind up the material, let it sit for a long period of time, promote extraction with mechanical methods and heat, and then go ahead and uh, concentrate it back down. I would just like to chime in and indicate that um, dep again, depending upon the state that you are operating in, there may be different solvents that are approved for industrial hemp versus marijuana. So in Colorado, which is where I'm from, the only types of solvents that you're allowed to use to extract industrial hemp 
are solvents that are approved for food because in Colorado, we do regulate industrial hemp as a food ingredient. And then the marijuana space, they have a lot more um, options uh, in terms of solvents. So that's something that you do need to make the distinction of. So in addition to testing methodologies that may vary from state to state, the things that you're also testing for may vary to state to state. I saw that some states don't even uh, mandate any testing for mold, which I found to be absolutely shocking. Could, uh, could any of you elaborate on some of these differences state to state? Yeah, yeah, I'll get into that. And I think the, the first question was referring to extraction process and testing, is that correct? Or just general extraction? Yeah, and what, what you're actually testing for. Yeah, so yeah, so the methodology. So depending on the matrix of whatever the product is in, for instance, like a gummy is extracted differently than plant or oil. Um, and the sonication step is common within the, within the lab process because you want to break apart whatever the matrix is to be able to extract the cannabinoids, CBD, THC, whatever else is in the product. Um, each state has different regulations and laws. For instance, Colorado was the first state to be recreational legal. They didn't really have testing out of the gate. It was, you could test one batch a year. Whereas some of the other states like Massachusetts, I think did it very correct out of the gate. You had to test every batch. There was a product batch size. There was regulations for pesticides, heavy metals, solvents, cannabinoids, all of those things. So, you know, we're in Cal our lab's located in California, which has a pretty robust testing regulations. And kind of what we've seen is every state that comes online does a, typically does a better job than the previous states. Um, so now, if you go into a state that's newer, has a newer legalized recreational program, there's typically pretty robust regulations. So California, Hawaii, Oregon, Nevada, Massachusetts, all those states have great regulations. And you know if you're buying a cannabis product or a CBD product that's regulated by the local government that it's going to be safe and tested. So obviously the entire CBD industry is buzzing as of late about the farm bill and Tui, you kind of touched on how currently in Colorado hemp is treated as, as a food. Yeah. Um, if the farm bill as it's agreed upon passes through, hemp will be treated more as a commodity like corn or wheat and less of a special product that we all know and love. So sure. could you touch on how some of those changes might affect the industry and these yeah. standards? I think we have to wait and look at the language that will be released in the farm bill. So it's, you know, I can speculate all I want, but when it comes down to it, it really depends on the language. And then I wanted to elaborate further on, on testing. Um, so yes, Colorado was the first recreational state. Um, and I will say that having worked as a regulator during that time, it was very difficult in terms of ensuring that the product that was being released into commerce was safe. And keep in mind, just because we went recreational did not mean that we had the capability of testing all different types of um, tests. So things that we need to test for is potency, homogeneity. Um, homogeneity is when they take usually three separate areas or samples and do potency testing to ensure that it's a homogenous uh, dosage. There would be, um, we don't have heavy metal testing yet in Colorado. Um, we had residual solvents. Um, what else did we have? At one point in time, we had on the regulations for aflatoxin or mold, we definitely have total yeast and mold testing. However, we don't have any required mycotox uh, mycotoxin testing, which I feel is even more important because in a lot of industries, food industries uh, particularly, 
you know, they're grains that you test for mycotoxins. And for in cannabis, we would test for aflatoxins and okra toxins. And one thing that Colorado recently agreed to, probably because of a lot of pressure from stakeholders, which doesn't help the public at all, is allowing for plant material that does not pass microbial testing. And when I say microbial testing, that includes total yeast and mold, um, STEX, which is shigatoxin E. coli, and salmonella species. So if you don't pass microbial, you can then still extract that plant material, that unwholesome plant material, and then they require you to do another step of microbial testing to ensure it's safe. But again, they aren't testing for mycotoxins, which to me is a real concern. That's really what you should be testing for if you're allowing for that. So um, besides, besides that, I will also say that in Colorado, it was only required to test recreational products. So any medical products where there may be immunocompromised individuals or highly susceptible individuals you know, consuming these products, thinking that the medical marijuana was better or safer, there's no required testing for that. So, you know, I, I mean, I, obviously I have a real problem with that um, because my crusade is, you know, public health and public safety. Um, so I just wanted to elaborate on that for the testing side. And then as far as the farm bill, like I said, I think we just have to wait and see what the language is. Um, you know, I, I hope it is in our favor for sure. Yeah, so you, t you touched on something interesting about uh, retesting once, once a product has failed. Up in Canada, many, many of the licensed producers have turned to a process called irradiation to sanitize their cannabis. Mm. Uh, many consumers, obviously the, the word irradiation alone sounds pretty scary to a lot of consumers. Some say it's used in food like onions and potatoes, so it's totally fine. What do you guys think about that? Do you, do you think that that's uh, an overstepping I, I'm sorry. I, I do believe it's an overstepping. I mean, we, we already do food processes that way. We're using this kind of, I, I think part of it is just you hear radiation and, and people start thinking nuclear power plants, things like that. But it's currently used in, in food processes right now, in, in meats, things like that. So it's, it is safe. Yeah, ma many uh, tests are showing that it destroys terpenes and flavonoids and other yeah. necessary parts of the, uh, the full spectrum experience. So. Yeah, if, there are definitely pros and cons. Yeah, if I could chime in. So in, in yeah. California, they call it remediation. I guess irradiation is a Canadian term. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they call it remediation. And as, as Stu was speaking about earlier, you know, if a, if a flower has mold or powdery mildew, a lot of people turn to the extraction process because you're using pressure and solvents and you're going to kill any bacteria or microorganisms. The problem is when there is mold, especially like aspergillus or some of the other molds that are susceptible to cannabis, when you go through that process, you get microtoxins, which is a byproduct of mold. Um, and those are especially dangerous to immunocompromised individuals that are treating themselves, especially if they have any type of lung or autoimmune disorders. That could be very dangerous. And you know, nobody's died from cannabis or CBD yet, but people have died from salmonella, E. coli. Um, Alpha you know. toxin poisoning. Yeah. So uh, another interesting note to bring up on this with the not testing for mycotoxins in certain states for hemp, if you were to uh, export your hemp out of the country, you would be required to have a discrete HPLC fluorimetry test for alpha toxin B2. You are required to have that as an export product. So the fact that states aren't doing it is kind of an oddity to me because that is a requirement for your product to just be sold versus consumed, used, smoked, whatever you want to do with it. Um, 
and that's kind of an odd problem because if we recognize at some level that this needs to be tested for at a federal level and at a consumer level, why aren't we doing it at the state level for the consumer? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, sh we should definitely keep in mind that you know a lot of these regulations they are putting into place and they may or may not be consulting with um, individuals who specialize in food safety. So mycotoxin testing is required for different food commodities for human consumption, right? And even for animal food and feed as well. Um, with respect to the irradiation, we should be very clear that that is something that FDA would regulate. So if we did allow for radiation or irradiation of uh, different commodities, that should be regulated as well. Does the state level have um, the expertise to regulate that and to monitor that? That's, you know, that's a question that we definitely need to inquire about. Um, yeah, I just wanted to chime in about that. No, great. So I, I want to touch back on the, the California testing lab that uh, California's Bureau of Cannabis Control busted for falsifying these reports. Everybody, it, it begs the question from everybody, who is testing the testers? Um. All right, so this is an interesting problem that, that's definitely one of the questions I was waiting for. Generally speaking, in a testing environment, it's regulated by standards set by ASTM, AOAC. If you're familiar with the military world, you get mil-spec for things like that. Standards like those plus ISO accreditation mean third-party validation with twice-a-year proficiency testing. With a lack of standardized testing, it comes down to being accredited and validating, which in reality, you should be cross-validating with another laboratory to do that. And that's the answer to your question. As per pesticides, it's a bigger gambit if you're familiar with the science. Most people are using a, a triple quad mass spec with something called an MRM, a multi-reaction module in it, and they're doing database searches to test. If you're familiar with database searching for fragments or any type of database searching for small pieces of information, you get a lot of false positives. You have to go back and rerun a CRM. It's afterwards, a certified reference material of the specific pesticide that was detected and confirm within 99% of your standard deviation for those fragmentation patterns, intensities, and a whole lot of other stuff I won't bore you with, that that's what it is. Because I'll tell you right now, I can throw stuff through a mass spec and I can make it look like other stuff. You need to have a certified reference, and MRM is not sufficient. Some of these labs are not necessarily following that protocol because we don't have a standardized method that forces that. And they're not referencing NLAP, which is the bigger problem, which is the uh, environmental labs. So, yeah, and, oh, and uh, I'm sorry. So, so, you know, CannaSafe, that's, that's our lab. We're the largest licensed lab in California. Um, and part of the California reg regulations are that you do have to run reference standards with every sample. Right, and so you've got your state allowing that, but we have 30 other states that don't necessarily do it. Yeah, right, so I'm just talking strictly yeah. about the regulated states. Um, you know, pretty much all of the newly regulated states require that. California is actually the most stringent. Typically in the analytical world, like an environmental lab or somebody else, there's a 10% there's a of your, your samples are quality control, meaning that, you know, one out of 10 samples, you're not really running a real sample, a customer sample, you're running a blank, you're running a known standard, a known reference material. And the reason you do that is to make sure that your calibrations are in check, that you're not getting carryover from uh, cannabis or CBD uh, samples, 
you know, as, as a, you know, the products, the oils are very dirty on these analytical instruments. The edibles are tough. A lot of times you get a lot of residual, especially with older lab instruments. You got all the res residual, you get carryover and contamination, and it can mess up your other samples. So California has gone kind of above and beyond. They're requiring 20% quality control, meaning that two out of 10 samples are a blank, a certified lab standard. Um, and what happened with the lab that the, the BCC, which, is, which regulates California cannabis, has actually investigated, there's like about 40 labs, probably about half of them are operational. So far they've investigated six labs, and five of the six that they've investigated have got shut down, either pulled their license or on a temporary shutdown. Um, and that's because this, this, the, they are trying to standardize um, as best as they can. They're requiring labs to really be accountable. You have to get an ISO accreditation. You have to run all these reference standards. And if you don't do that, they will shut you down. So I would say, you know, as a whole, they're trying to lead what's going to be coming on a, a, you know, with other states and on a federal level, uh, you know, of regulating cannabis and CBD products. But one of the points I do want to add that we really haven't touched on is, is there is no set of standardized methods yet between the, these testing labs. And this is really, that's the biggest challenge is, is, is our lab will run one way different than another lab and each lab is validated, each lab is ISO accredited and each lab has their database. You can still get slightly different answers just because there is no official, here's, here's your extraction method that everybody's going to use for hemp. This is your testing you're going to do for a CBD oil. This is. And, and until we get to that point, it's going to be more of a challenge, really, on all of our parts to, to hit to that kind of level. Absolutely. And so, oh. again, it's very dependent upon the state. So not all states require 17025 mm -hmm. ISO accreditation. Okay? So we should, we should be very clear on that. And then let's talk about proficiency testing. So in Colorado, they do require proficiency testing of the laboratories that are conducting any sort of uh, cannabis-type testing. But when you look into the proficiency testing and you look to see um, how accurate they need to be, it's very dependent upon the matrix that they are testing. And when I looked into it, dependent upon the matrix, some of them was 30% or 20% proficient. So that's a very, very large, you know, allowance to say someone is proficient. And a lot of that, again, has to do with not having standardized methods. So each laboratory is usually doing their own method development. Um, and then on top of that, it's very specific to their instrument that they have because obviously, you know, the different instruments are very expensive. And then there should be method validation as well. But again, you know, that doesn't exist in the testing world for, can for the cannabis space right now. So in... Anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> there is no standardized method no. In, any, in anywhere except for water activity which is use the instrument as it is provided right. by the supplier. <laughs> so in, in looking through some marketing materials from a handful of labs that I've had the pleasure of meeting with, I noticed that some actually market their test results as being better than competitors. It's obviously vague. Um, uh, are there any regulations as to how labs market themselves? I'm, I'm leading towards questions related to conflicts of interest, as I'm sure you might be able to tell. but. I find it bizarre that a that a lab could advertise better results. Do you, do you want the you want the complex answer? Uh, no, I want the there, white there, is answer. There, there isn't. It's there. There hasn't been standards that actually set up and stuff to ex, to actually say, okay, you know, you can say you're better, you're good, whatever. And it's and, until you get the regulations to kick in, it, it, labs are some labs are going to do that. Um, and it, but the thing is, is that they look back at their data, and yes, their data is very good. They're fully validated. They're ISO accredited. Challenges you got to run into is, is you can find labs where we're ISO accredited only for 
potency, only for water activity. And then they claim the whole lab is ISO accredited. It, so there's a, there's a lot of leeway in there. Yeah, I, I don't see Quest Diagnostics advertising different or better results than LabCorp, so to speak. And I want to touch on an important subject here with ISO. There's nothing wrong with ISO, but if you're not familiar with what ISO is and what it does, it really boils down to document what you do, do what you document, and when something isn't properly done, document it, document it, and then fill out a CAPA form <laughs> or a CAR, depending on whether you're 9001 or 17 or 25. But it's a very important reality. Um, I just wanted to clarify that. Who decides which lab uh, to use? Is it the manufacturer or is it the state? It's, it's usually the manufacturer, and then the state will usually have a list of certified labs for different types of testing. So you may be a laboratory that um, can conduct all types of testing. However, you need to be certified by the state for that specific testing. And I'm really glad that you brought up the fact that ISO accreditation does not mean that every single test that that laboratory conducts is ISO accredited. It's very specific to a specific type of testing. Um, and, and then in addition to that, as far as marketing is concerned, um, I would ask, well, how are you better? What are the metrics that you're comparing? Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do we know without knowing your method development that you're obviously unwilling to share with the rest of the industry so that we can progress, yeah. right? So those are things that I would ask. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, like I said, I'm an ex-regulator, so I'm going to start asking all sorts of questions, and I, am, I have no shame. But, um, but what I will say is that when I was in the industry, when I was working in the marijuana industry and you know, speaking to different laboratories, you know, they of course wanted my business because it, you know, it helped them. But what they would say to me was, we work for the industry. Now if that doesn't tell you, you know, kind of the sway that they're trying to have and maybe convince you in so many words legally you know, what they're willing and not willing to do, um, you know, I don't know what it is. I, I think it's, you know, like anything, it's, there are good players and bad players. And if you have enough money, then I, I think that you can be paid off. Absolutely. A, a recent example for down here in Florida is Liberty Health Sciences has recently been uh, alleged to be uh, defrauding some investors with some odd transactions. And what they always go back to saying is that our auditors and advisors approved of this. Well, who pays your auditors and who pays your advisors? You do. So of course they approved it because you'll go find another auditor. So I guess now that we're touching on some of the most blatant conflicts of interest in the space, what are some of the, the hidden conflicts of interest going on in the testing space that someone such as myself might not know? So, so I'm gonna answer this one and also the question before. In terms of better results, I would say the only thing that you could argue better would be the service, the turnaround time, the price, and the consistency of the results, meaning that when you get the same product, you test it the same, and you get the same results. I think that's, that's a big problem, especially in the CBD market where people are selling isolate and it's 92 or it's 85 or it's 99. Like we've, kind of, we've seen that where people will send samples and they want, nine. hey, this should be 99. And you know, when it comes back at 92, they're disappointed. Um, and then going into the, the hidden conflicts, and, and I've been on the side of that, you know, kind of part of our mantra is that we're not willing to sell our integrity for three hundred dollars, um, you know, for a test result. Like, because believe, because yeah, you know, because believe, because believe me, like every week it's like, hey, 
you know, that's, this is my first time. I only had a couple pesticides in there. Like, what are we going to do? Like, you know, um, you know, and that's always my answer. Like, Hey, look, we spent a lot of money doing this, right? We've been the, the, you know, the longest standing accredited lab in cannabis. We're the first ones to do it. Like, I'm not going to sell our integrity seven years later for 300 bucks, dude. Um, but yeah, I think that would be the, the hidden. There's definitely a lot of that where people are, you know, they're shopping lab results. Um, they have problems. We have people all the time. And, and those are typically the, the customers that we lose are the ones that aren't happy with their results because there's something yeah. wrong with them. And, you know, they go somewhere else until somebody's willing to, to say, hey, here's a couple thousand bucks. Can you make, you know, can you, can you pass me off? Because, you know, the value of these batches is anywhere from fifty to $250,000 in California. So there's definitely incentive for, uh, you know, manufacturers, producers, distributors to, you know, try to compromise the integrity or, you know, forge the, the testing lab side. But would you sell your integrity for, say, half a million dollars, knowing that all of the tests, samples were being sent to you, or what's, what's your price? What's your price? Right? We spent a we spent a lot more than half a million dollars. So you know, we I mean that's we just we don't like we don't have a price, but I can refer you to some of our competitors that do. Yeah. So I'll, the only thing that I'm trying to illustrate is there is a price, and if you can promise a laboratory that you will send all of your samples to them and you will pay the fees, nope. and maybe you can promise them an X amount of dollars that they work with you and make sure that they're getting the results that they anticipate or expect, then yes, of course there's going to be laboratories that are willing to sell their soul. Well, and, and better, go ahead. I was going to say, so I'll just comment here. Um, I would tell the client the same thing I told my students when I was a former college professor. If you want me to look the other way while you cheat, you need to pay me enough money to put me up on my own private island for the rest of my life and never have to worry about cash again. <laughs> that's what it's going to take for some labs to sell their integrity, and I, I think that uh, that's where we're at. You're not going to do it, but I do understand, and this was a coined termed by our former head of the OMMU in Florida, some people are willing to take perverse incentives. And that's kind of what we're discussing. So oh, to the well, well, just to highlight a little bit more. It, it, well, it's the lab shouldn't do it because it, yeah. it, it just it doesn't help the manufacturer at the end. It doesn't help the consumer at the end. It, and they inevitably will get caught. That that is the bigger thing. Twenty five years of farming. Anytime we've seen a lab that would fudge numbers or something, it eventually came back and it haunted them. So you just start out at the beginning. If you have integrity, you're providing the best service you can, the quickest service, and the correct numbers. If they don't like the numbers, that's the numbers, are the numbers. The numbers, are the numbers. Well, yeah, you, and, but you're looking at it strictly from a testing yes. perspective. You're saying that it's going to help the manufacturer. For them, marketing their product and having the test results or the C of A that's going to support what they're marketing is our product is the most pure, or whatever the case is. That's what is important to them, not what you're saying, which is quality. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of, yes, they will eventually get caught. I do agree with that. However, this is such a new industry and the regulation of the testing facilities. You know, a lot of times the regulators may not even know what they're looking at or maybe, maybe they don't understand the testing method or maybe they don't understand the equipment, you know, well enough to be able to identify that, you know, something is off. So it's very easy to hide your mistakes. Um, you need to have someone who is extremely qualified and understands every part of you know, the, the sample prep, the testing methodology, the equipment, you know, reading the results, all of that. You know, and it's the same way you know, in food. So when I was a health inspector, 
I would go into restaurants and there would be a lot of operations or processes that I didn't understand. And it was easy for them to, you know, use a lot of big words with a lot of syllables and then kind of put me in the other direction and say, hey, go this way. So you really have to make sure that the investigator who is inspecting and certifying these laboratories are the subject matter experts, right? I agree. So I agree. You, you touched on a private island. You touched on having <laughs> enough cash to go away. <laughs> And that's actually a perfect segue to my next question. In, in recent months, I've seen um, a handful of labs get acquired for multi-million dollar valuations by companies that sell products to the end consumer. Many of this is up in Canada, where you have companies with well over $400 million in the till. Um, you know, that's enough to buy you an island now. So my question is, do you believe that when Aurora Cannabis buys Anandia Labs, and distributes cannabis to their consumers, all tested by Anandia Labs as a third party. Do you believe that there's any way that that can actually maintain its uh, Chinese wall, so to speak? That's a rough question to ask. First off, that comment wasn't just about the island. I, did, I will say we didn't start a lab with the idea of doing that to do anything other than to make sure that people no, of quality. Course, of course. I know, I just <laughs> felt like saying that. But the, uh, the reality of that problem there is a very real one. I mean, and it actually, interestingly, also touches on an issue with Florida's medical marijuana uh, issues right now. To be a testing lab for a medical marijuana lab out here, we have to have an extension of the grower's license, it's called a variance, to our lab to have their product for testing. That's a conflict of interest. We have a developed relationship with the company now, at which if they decide to pull it, as you so nicely pointed out, I don't have samples to test. That's revenue stream gone. That's enough of a, of a conflict of interest here. I can't imagine what it would be like if that company owned me and we gave them a bad result. That's the cut. I mean, I really don't. So are you saying we should get a fourth party to test a raw cannabis products? I'm saying that that's not a third party lab, even if it's a C company under an S holding company. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I agree. <laughs> well, 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 let, me, let me throw a monkey wrench at this whole discussion here. Go for it. Let's go into the pharmaceutical industry. I spent 25 years there. They test their own products. They do not have a third-party testing lab. They, they actually will hire them to, to run samples and stuff, but really all their testing is internal. Mm -hmm. So there is this no third-party concept there. Now, you would think that is where the area should be where you'd want to have somebody that's third-party testing at you. I would agree with that. Even in the food industry, you know, there, you know, you can do your own quality assurance, quality control internally, because obviously it's a lot less expensive for you to, um, you know, have, build your own laboratory than it is to send out, you know, hundreds and thousands of samples. Um, basically, what it boils down to is just the integrity of the business and of the laboratory. And, you know, all all you can hope is that people are doing things right because they want to help progress the industry and and make sure that they are delivering safe wholesome products to consumers instead of trying to either circumvent the law or you know make it so, make it so that they appear compliant because you know you can you can appear compliant and you can spend a lot of money appearing compliant um, so yeah you would just hope that people are trying to do the right thing I would say the answer to the question is that they need a ISO 1720 auditor that is a subject matter expert in cannabis testing to audit their lab that's not going to be easy to find. <laughs> so when it comes to sample size, I want to bring this up because of how it relates to the black market. As, a, as an investor in the cannabis space, I get to do a lot of due diligence on cannabis, cannabis companies, large and small. Oftentimes, when I start digging through, I see discrepancies where the producer will 
note in their metric or in their seed to sale tracking that uh, let's say half a pound left inventory for testing, but upon calling the lab, about a gram and a half went for testing. And as a New Yorker with no med card, I, I assure you that I find all of this arriving in the New York market, tested by state accredited labs that I have found to be a part of these little schemes. So I want to just touch on the black market and how how that provides even further um, incentive to fudge the numbers, so to speak. I feel like I have a lot to say about this. Okay, so Please. sample size. Well, first let's talk about sample size and what's required. Is that even representative of harvest batch or the lot number or whatever it is that you're testing? In certain states, they require that, say, I believe in Washington, it's maybe every five pounds, but don't quote me on that. Is it 10, 10 pounds? Okay. So it depends on the state. In Colorado, they just tell you harvest batch. So what is the harvest batch? Can you just throw all of these different types of uh, products from you know, many different harvest batches into one metric tag? If you guys are aware of the inventory tracking, metric is a way of tracking that. They can put all of these uh, metric tags into one and call it one harvest batch, and they can take a small sample and test it and say it's representative of the entire harvest batch when it really isn't. So, so let's definitely talk about you know the quality of your sample size, and then you know not even plant material. Same with oil. If that oil is not homogenous, and when you're taking that sample, how representative is that going to be of the entire batch? So there has to be limitations on size, and then also making sure that it's a homogenous batch that you're testing, and it comes from one source. Um, if you're talking specifically, sorry, what was the second part of that about? The black market. The black yeah, market, the, okay. The added incentive. <clears throat> well, what I can tell you is, yes, they, you know, that's product diversion. You know, that's something that whatever regulatory agency that's overseeing um, the licensing should fully be aware of and they should be able to monitor the, the tracking device or uh, the tracking system that mm -hmm. they have in place, whether it be BioTracker or Metric or whatever it is, um, there's definitely product diversion that's happening. Or even, you know, if you're sending a sample size that's larger than the, you know, sample that you're requesting, sometimes they're doing other <clears throat> R&D testing. Um, so maybe I'm sending in half a pound or whatever it is for potency testing when in fact you only need a gram or half a gram or whatever it is, but they're doing other testing to ensure that their product um, won't be flagged for something else. So uh, for instance, maybe we're doing pesticide testing to verify that our plant material isn't hot, um, but we're calling it a potency testing and you know, off, uh, delivering a very large sample size and it won't be in the record. So that's definitely something that happens as well in the industry. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a rhetorical question, if any of these labs are in the audience, you do realize that when you print the test number on the product and it ends up being sold to me in Union Square that I do, I am able to tra track it back to who produced it and who tested it. I mean, it's shocking that this happens. I, I, I'd like to comment on this because we kind of see this. We, we test for some of the New York brands, uh, we call them, in, in California. Um, and typically what, what we've seen happen is California is kind of half foot in, half foot out. The black market still outsizes the mm -hmm. regulated market. And a lot of the brands actually make duplicate product batches. So they'll make a batch that will test, like for instance, vape cartridges. I know like 
uh, brass knuckles and heavy hitters and you know those are all big the joke is New York brands um, you know they're they're also heavily counterfeited um, too where people will print the same stickers you know that have our test results on them um, so what what will happen though is like uh, I think I don't want to say any brand names but one one of our clients who makes chocolate edibles they had like a million dollars worth of inventory busted like in a U-Haul van driving across Minnesota and this was stuff that had our sticker on it that we had never even tested. Um, and it was almost like that, you know, because right now California is in between uh, getting uptake to metric. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually have a live track and trace system. It's all, it's all paper-based while they onboard all the companies. So there's definitely a lot of room for brands and businesses to do that sort of thing. Uh, I think a couple, a couple counties just approved BioTrack THC as a seed to sale, right? And traceability in California. Yeah, yeah in California. it's it's dependent upon the state, whichever uh, tracking system that yeah. the state decides <laughs> to adopt. Um, you know, in addition to you know the product diversion, we should also know that people are peddling good C of A's, right? There are uh, certificates of analysis that have desirable results, and it has a batch number, a lot number, and. You know, sometimes people will, and when I say people, it could be a broker, it could be the manufacturer, it could be a lot of different things. How are you able to verify that that CFA actually um, is specific to the batch that you're receiving? All it is is just knowing your supplier and hoping that they have enough integrity to give you the results that um, are actually true to that product because what happens is if you're purchasing let's just say oil or CBD isolate or whatever it is they're providing you a C of A that says 99% pure when in fact maybe it's actually 89 or whatever it is but you're using that C of A to create your formulation and you're basing it off of that potency then your formulation is off right or maybe that C of A forgot to include that there's THC included in it and you're making a THC free product, now you're putting something into market that has THC and let's just pretend that it's being consumed by a government employee or an athlete or whatever it is and then they test hot for illegal drugs or regulated drugs. So it's, it's very important to ensure that these testing facilities you know, are doing exactly what they should be doing to ensure that the product is safe um, for the consumer because they're really the only other checkpoint before it gets out to the consumer. And then if you are a manufacturer and you are not vertically integrated and you are purchasing product, you need to do your due diligence as well. Just because you receive a product and you receive their C of A, you know, if you have a compliance officer, if you have a food safety background, you're going to double check that product and you will send it out for testing. Is it gonna cost you extra money? Absolutely, but you know what? It's the cost of doing business It's to verify if there's a discrepancy between the test results that you received and the test results that was given to you, then you need to have a conversation with your supplier. You touched on double checking. Um, rising availability and declining costs of handheld slash at-home testing units are making them more widely spread. I know a handful of consumers in New York that have handheld testing units. Is this something that, um, you know, that brands are actually worried about, that consumers will be double-checking these results, or are these handheld devices just not advanced enough to call them out on their mistakes? 
Jesus. You, you could do a better job looking at it and guessing what it is um, than yeah. the handheld. Uh. Yeah, I mean. Well, not as much handheld, but. Even uh, you know, so, I mean, even a handheld would be like a pocket GC sniffer or UV spectrometer. Maybe mm -hmm. if you're real lucky, maybe a good mid-range infrared. First off, they're not going to have an acceptable calibration curve that's kept up and maintained, nor are they really doing a good job of subtracting any background or doing matrix standards. So he's right. Your average smoker probably has a better idea from using it and looking at it than they would from putting it through a testing machine. Very interesting. But the average, the average consumer, let's just make sure that they, you know, they want to ensure that they're getting what they paid for. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I learned by working in the industry was, did you know that a lot of consumers have their own scales at home? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That yep. obviously yep. not calibrated by USDA, but that was something mm. that I found very interesting. So I think they're trying to do their part to verify what they're receiving. <laughs> However, they maybe don't understand the science mm -hmm. behind testing or whatever it is that they are trying to verify. And you know that's the best that they can do on their end. So I applaud them for trying, yeah. um, but you really do have to understand if you want to compare your test results from your pocket, whatever it is that you're using, you know, you, you need to ensure that those test results that you're giving me, you better, be, you better have the same accreditations and our certifications that I have, and then we can talk. So let's, let's touch on some of those accreditations and certifications uh, as the panel is coming to a close. We've mentioned ISO certification, and also before the panel, we touched on GMP certification, which is... Uh, GLP is for Oh, GLP, excuse me. So could we just touch on the importance of these and why the industry needs more and more labs to roll out under these accreditations? Yeah, so as mentioned earlier, what, a, what an accreditation is, specifically ISO, is... It's document control. It's it's doing what you say you're going to do. Um, yeah, it's a quality management system. You know, re recording any mistakes. You know, you go through an audit. You know, an annual on-site and an off-site audit annually. Um, and it's basically self-regulation. You bring a third party in your lab and you have them basically check your homework. Like, are you doing what you say you're going to do? Um, the importance of this it, it is directly correlates to all the incentivized you know, cheating or, or, you know, so have you. And, and, you know, basically just making sure that the integrity of our space is upheld. Um, you know, we, you know, as mentioned too, we at CanaSafe, we're accredited for everything we test for from, you know, all 66 pesticides, heavy metals, uh, solvents. We're actually only one of two labs in California that has the full accreditation. Like most labs are accredited to test potency or, you know, some of the pesticides. Um, and I think that that's, the states are catching on to that in terms of in terms of from a regulatory side, where they're making you know the labs have to be accredited for everything you test for, which makes sense. Like, how could you only be accredited to test you know half of the stuff that's on your scope? Yeah. So I think you know all these all these things are important going forward, and that's going to be what helps standardize our segment outside of you know having standardized accepted methods and standard vendors and all those things. So to quickly touch on something you brought up that I really want to point out is a good point. You specified that you're accredited for all 66 pesticides. Something to ask your labs, guys, you can be accredited for one analyte. You can get an ISO accreditation for the ability to detect CBC. That's it. And the rest of your potency test isn't fully under accreditation because they haven't done all of the boring statistical studies for the other analytes. So when somebody says they're ISO accredited, delve in a little further and find out what the extent of that is. It's not something that is an umbrella for their entire lab. 
Um, and then also, the other major things that you'll find depending on the states, and you guys especially, you can talk more about this, Oregon and some states have specific lab certifications that you have to get or uh, processes that you go through for the state. Florida appears to have one coming as well. Most people are looking to be GLP if they can if they can get there in ISO. You've got NLAP as well, which is environmental labs. Um, and oh, what's the food lab one? I always forget. I can't remember the food lab acronym off my head, but that's another one you're going to see start popping up a lot as well. Um, but primarily what we need is, is a standardization for marijuana testing and cannabis testing labs. We need something specific for what we do for the matrices we see. One other thing I'll point out is, is, is you start to see these testing labs and they'll have, say, multiple facilities in one state or multiple states. Just because Lab A here got their ISO accreditation on one assay does not mean their facility that is in the next state over is also ISO accredited. Each lab itself has to do it, and it has to do it for each test, each analysis. At each, at each facility on yes. each piece of equipment? Yes. So we've talked a lot about authentication, traceability, diversion, a lot of hot words in the space. So I just wanted to bring up something that I uh, recently learned about to see what you, th you guys thought of this technology. It's a molecular DNA tagging technology that allows, uh, it allows producers, track and trace softwares, et cetera, to pretty much track product samples with 100% verification ability across the supply chain, much in the same way that Delta tracks your bags with RFID chips as they roll through airports. Do you guys think that spraying DNA molecular tags on cannabis products is a good a good step forward for the industry, or do you think that that's uh, you know the only way that we can have transparency? I, I think it's overkill. Yeah, um, and I also don't know. I mean, I've obviously seen the technology. I don't know what type of you know byproducts from smoking the the isotopes. Yeah, isotope the DNA isotopes on it cause because that's the problem with cannabis specifically. Like cigarettes would be the only comparison, but. A lot of the pesticides that are used on cannabis, which is tough to grow, you know, are carcinogenic when you combust them. You know, like when you're eating a tomato, you're not lighting it on fire and inhaling it. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the big difference. Well, that's you. I do that. Oh, uh, well, no, I'm just <laughs> With the exception of Jacob, I don't know that anybody else, uh, you know, smokes their tomatoes. But, you know, that's, that's, that's the Homer risk Simpson? with... Yeah, that, that's the risk with you know cannabis and, and smoking a product and you know add like you know spraying DNA isotopes or pesticides on it. Well, you know, that's where your exposure is. It's similar to the irradiation. Uh, you know, the company even notes that this is a generally recognized as safe practice for use in food since 1958. Food companies are already using this technology. This company just happened to apply it to the cannabis space. But that's the problem, is that we are not food companies. This is not an ingested material at the first step. Food is washed, waxed, and sold. It's not extracted with solvents, subjected to temperatures and pressures that rise for thermal and kinetically inhibited reactions to take place. The other problem is this. That DNA darker probably contains DNA dyes, such as host dyes in it, which are extremely bad for them to come into contact with living cells. They embed into your DNA and, well, mutate the living crud out of it because it's not supposed to be there. You know, it's not gamma radiation that's going to turn you into the Hulk, but it's it's going to give you cancer. Yeah, it's going to give you cancer. And it may it may be 
you know, long-term chronic exposure until you determine the safety of it. So I completely mm -hmm. agree with, you know, what the panelists are saying with respect yeah. to that. And, you know, the way I would look at it is just strictly from a food safety perspective. This is one of the, cannabis is one of the few commodities that you do have a lot of different types of extraction techniques. You do have a lot of different types of chemicals that you're applying. You can orally consume it. You can um, smoke it. You can apply it topically. I mean, I know that there are products out there that they're trying to promote saying that it's an inhaler, which, you know what, that's a medical device, should be regulated by FDA, yeah. trying to make... Um, there's suppositories, there are, you know, um, creams or uh, um, sensual lotions and whatnot. And medical so, devices require yeah, a different ISO accreditation, right? Mm -hmm. Stores in Bickle, the vaporizer company that makes volcanoes that was just acquired, I believe the entire value of the acquisition was their ISO medical device facility, right? I mean, uh, manufacturing can still fall under 9001, but if you're a clinical manufacturer, there are secondary requirements that you may have laid on you regulatory-wise. Gotcha. It's still a GMP 9001, probably CGMP, actually. So we've run a couple minutes over, and I just wanted to quickly speed round each one of you from, from my left all the way over, give everybody a, a lasting remark to take home. What, what should they look for, and, uh, and what should they be careful about? You first, sir. Is that me first? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so typically, what I tell businesses and consumers is to, to make sure that you're, you're working with or you're buying products that come from a respectable manufacturer but also come from a respectable lab. Um, you know, there's, I think name recognition is coming out. Something that we do is we include a QR code on all of our test results so that if a manufacturer has actually tested our result, you can go through a public portal, check the QR code, and see that result you know, to, to make sure that they didn't just change the COA in a PDF. Um, and that it's at, and we take a picture of everything as well, so you, you can make sure that whatever the product you're buying or receiving is representative of what they actually got tested. I would say trust but verify. Talk to your labs, talk to your suppliers, talk to everyone in your chain from the bottom to the top. You'll find out if your lab doesn't want to talk to you about what you're doing, it's probably not a good thing. We should be up front. We are where I work, and I would believe everybody at this panel is upfront about what they do. That's why we're here today. But if somebody wants to hide what they're doing with your product, find somebody else. I really appreciate the trust yet verify. That we used to do all the time in pharma. That, that is the backup thing you want to do. And really, the panelists have all said it. You really want to work well with a, a testing lab. You want to partner with them. You want to be able to trust them because they're the ones that actually help carrying your product. Um, and it's fascinating. We start talking about the QR codes, things like that. You don't find that on Excedrin. You don't find that on other consumer products. And now you have the ability as a consumer to take your CBD oil, scan it, and see a CA. And you want to make sure that is the right CFA that goes with that product. So it's all about integrity. Agreed. Yeah. I'd like to open the floor for questions from the audience. That's a loaded question with the question of traceability. If we have proof that the lot that was tested at my lab is what we were provided and that they have 
in some way altered, whether it was out of quarantine, it wasn't properly taken care of, or they mislabeled it, the lab is not liable for that. What we have provided is correct. If we go back to the earlier discussion of perverse incentives, that's a different liability issue, though. So it really depends on where the error in the label occurs. Is it, is it the manufacturer, or did the lab provide falsified results? And as a consumer, if you're asking from a cons consumer's perspective, um, I mean, if I were the consumer and I didn't know where to start, I would start with the regulatory agency that oversees um, that municipality or that jurisdiction specifically, just to inquire. Um, I mean, if it were, if it was just a one-off, I mean, I would definitely let the manufacturer know. But one thing that I did notice, um, being a regulator and then also going into the industry, industry space, is the industry is very protective of itself. So you can report it to the manufacturer or the operator, but is there? Um, going to be anything, any follow through. I mean, they'll do what they need to do to keep you as a consumer, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to continue to deliver, you know, high quality products. So it really depends on, you know, which way you want to go. I think that we're already there on track and trace in most states with metric. Uh, you know, metric and, you know, biotrack, there's a couple of different systems. And how those systems work is they start with an RFID chip that you have to place in the plant. So when you have a plant, it, it's RFID chipped. And that system, metric, it's meant for getting the tax dollars from those plants. That's how it started. So you know they're going to get their tax money. Um, so they, they literally track that plant through the whole process of production. So if it goes to flour, you know, it gets packaged and goes to the shelf, it's tracked. If it goes into an edible, that oil from that flour is tracked to, you know, 2,000 edibles. And with the goal being to collect this, the end result retail tax from all of those sold. So yes, there's already track and trace.